Well, good morning, Bridgeway. How are we doing? It is great to see you. If we have not met, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors here. And as you know by now, it is Caring Compassion Expo weekend, which is one of my favorite weekends of the year. We are a church that believes in the power of partnership and it is just such an extraordinary gift and blessing for us as a church to get to partner with so many incredible organizations, a number of whom are here in our, our, our lobby today. And as Josh just mentioned, a huge reason why we're able to partner with them, financially support what's going on with them, is because of, of your giving. So I'm, I'm personally, just for me, as a, someone trying to raise his family and everything else, I'm just glad to be a part of a church that values partnership. And I'm glad that, again, there there is such a diversity of incredible organizations represented on our campus today, and we are just incredibly grateful to them and for their partnership and to be able to celebrate the work that God is doing in their midst this weekend. So on this Karen Compassion weekend, I've entitled the message, A Body in Motion, How Christians Change Culture. A Body in Motion, How Christians Change Culture. And in my life, every once in a while, I find myself in conversations about the topic of revival. And I don't know if I end up in conversations like that because I'm a pastor and that's the sort of thing that people want to talk to pastors about, but it, does, it comes up with some regularity. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a gentleman right here in this room, and we were talking about how he really believes that we are on the cusp of revival in America, on the cusp of seeing lots of people turn to faith in Christ. And then I talked to other people who were just like, oh, America's so lost, and revival's never going to come, and da 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 and I'm, on and on we can go. And I think wherever you are on that spectrum, whether you think we're on the cusp or it's hard for you to imagine it happening at all, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of us here in this room and most of us watching online would agree that revival in America would be a good thing, that a resurgence of faith in Christ would be a good thing, that a resurgence of Christian values being represented in society and people being blessed by that would be a good thing. For some of us, maybe that's even something we regularly pray for. So the question is, how do we do it? How does that happen. The good news is, if you and I are going to answer that question for the present and for the future, we don't just have to guess. We don't just have to imagine how that can happen. Because we can actually look to the past. Because what many of us desire to see happen in America, in our generation, already happened in a different generation in another part of the world, at a time where, where in, a, in a culture, I should say, that was far less open to Christian ideas than ours is now. And it happened at a much larger scale. A few years ago, in 2018, a religious studies professor at University of North Carolina named Bart Ehrman wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. And Bart Ehrman is one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world today, and notably, he is not a Christian. So he has no incentive at all to make Christianity to look good, to overstate Christianity's influence. And he wrote this book, The Triumph of Christianity, trying to answer the question, how on earth did a religious movement of random Galileans and their crucified leader 
become the greatest and most dominant social and religious force in the history of the world? That's the question he was trying to answer. Because think about it. Jesus lived when the Roman Empire controlled most of the known world at that time. And oh, by the way, they crucified him. That should have been the end of the movement. And yet, today, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people will gather all over the world in services like this to worship Jesus. And yet, if you visit the Roman Colosseum today, you will find a cross over the emperor's entrance. And that cross is not a symbol of Roman strength. That cross was installed as a monument to Jesus Christ. Literally, a building where Christians used to be killed for entertainment is now a monument to the sufferings of Jesus. Or think about this, that Jesus lived and died amidst powerful Jewish leaders under the reign of Herod, who were hell-bent on squashing this new so-called heretical religious movement. And today, Herod's temple is in ruins, and Jesus is worshipped on every continent. So how did it happen? And that's an important question for us to consider because the answer can help us answer the question of what will it take to bring revival to America. If you look on your handout or if you look on the app, you'll see that the subtitle to the message is How Christians Change Culture. And you'll notice a little D in parentheses at the end of the word change. And the reason for that is as I mentioned a moment ago, the sort of change we desire to see has already happened. What so many of us long to see happen in America took place 2,000 years ago. And once again, it happened in a context that was in every regard less friendly to Christian ideas than ours is today. Listen to what Bart Ehrman wrote in 2018. He said, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and on an even more fundamental level, the very understanding of billions of people of what it means to be human. Now catch this part. However one evaluates the merits of the case, whether the Christianization of the West was a triumph to be treasured or a defeat to be lamented, No one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. Did you catch that last part? The most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. And here's the really wild part. They did it without boycotting anything. (laughs) They did it without mocking anybody on social media. They didn't go to any school board meetings and yell at people. They didn't try to get any books banned from the library. I don't know what you're thinking. Well, what on earth did they do then? They did it without Christians becoming a voting block or without Christians using their rightness to justify their rudeness. But if we look at how it did happen and what they did do, then we can understand how that kind of cultural transformation can happen today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. If you are 
Somebody with a church background, you've been in church a while, you likely will find the text I'm about to read very familiar. If you're new to all of this, new to church, new to faith, or exploring faith, maybe it just be helpful for you to know the passage I'm about to read is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. In John chapter 13, Jesus is nearing his death, and he's gathered with his closest disciples. And he's already washed their feet, which would have been just an unheard of act of humility and service for a first century rabbi. And he's begun to tell them that he's not going to be with them much longer and that where he is going, they cannot join him. And then he says this in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now that in and of itself was not new. There were commands to that effect in the Old Testament and the value of loving others back then as, of now, as it is now was relatively non-controversial. None of Jesus' disciples are hearing him say this and going, oh, hold up, Jesus, I'm gonna need you to repeat that. It's just blowing my mind right now. Repeat that so I can write it down, right? But what came next was pretty wild. What came next was radical. What came next was something that if we can recapture this today, I believe we can see God move in culture-changing ways now, much as he did back then. Jesus says this, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus doesn't say love others in the way that you hope that they will love you. He doesn't say love others in the way that they deserve. He says, love others in the way that I have loved you. Now, we have to remember, 21st century Christians, when we think of the love of Jesus, I don't know about you, the first thing for me that comes to mind is the cross. And I think rightfully so, that that is the supreme definition and example of Jesus' love for us. But remember, when this took place, the cross hadn't happened yet. Jesus was right there with them. So what you had was a group of men who had spent several years with Jesus, watching him do ministry, seeing the ways that he had loved them and he had loved others. I imagine Matthew sitting there and remembering how he was a Roman tax collector who'd abandoned the faith and culture of his youth and likely, and likely was a disgrace to his family. And yet Jesus, as Matthew was a Roman tax collector, went to him and he said, come and follow me. And he offered him grace and forgiveness and acceptance. Or I can imagine James and John, who scripture tells us about a time where their egos got a little bit out of control and they were saying, Jesus, we know that you're gonna be about to become really powerful. We want some of that power. And Jesus corrected them to be sure to say, no, 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 you've misunderstood what I'm about. But he didn't say, hey, your egos are out of control. You're out. He invited them close and extended to them grace and forgiveness and acceptance. Or I think about Peter, who, my goodness, he had run his mouth so much in the course of Jesus's ministry that I'm sure even he was surprised he hadn't been kicked out by Jesus yet. And yet, he was part of the inner circle. And around that group you could go, it was a group of men who had experienced radical grace and forgiveness and love from Jesus. And they were being called upon to extend that love out into the world. Jesus continues, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This was Jesus's big strategy for getting his movement off the ground. This is Jesus's big strategy for showing the world what he was about, radical love. 
And I want to point something out about the reason that Jesus gives to them for obeying this command. In giving instructions to his disciples at this time or any time, Jesus could have leveraged his authority. He, should have, he could have said, listen, I am your rabbi, so I will give the instructions and you need to do what I say. That would have been very normal. Or heck, he could have leveraged his divinity. He said, listen, you guys, I am the son of God. I have divine authority, so you need to do what I tell you to do. He could have done that and would have been entirely justified in doing it. But he didn't leverage his authority. He leveraged his example. He says, as I have loved you, so love others. See, it's one thing to say, do as I say. It's another thing to say, do as I have done. That's leadership. That's real leadership. Jesus says, follow my example. Earlier in John chapter 13, after he washes his disciples' feet, he says this. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. And of course, it would only be a short time after that that Jesus' example of sacrificial love would be ratcheted up some more as he would die on a cross. And he says to his disciples, your standard for loving others is the way that I have loved you. And this love is how the world will know that you belong to me. Later in the New Testament, in a famous passage, the Apostle Paul would say that we as followers of Christ are meant to be living sacrifices. That Jesus died, he sacrificed himself for us. That we are to be living sacrifices. That our lives are lived in joyful service to God and others. Or Peter, who was in that room with Jesus, would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2 saying that Christ suffered for us, giving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And getting back to John chapter 13, I want you to notice what he didn't say. Jesus did not say, all people will know that you are my disciples if you believe the right things. See, Jesus understood something that I think is easy for us to forget, and that is that our beliefs do not change the world, our actions do. Our beliefs do not change the world, our actions do. I don't know about you, I don't care about the belief system of someone whose life I don't respect. You're always angry, and you're mean, and you want to argue with people, and you're selfish. Please tell me about the belief system that is undergirding this sort of behavior. I'm thinking of adopting it for myself. No. Nobody cares what we believe until they see a way of life that is interesting and attractive. And Jesus has invited us into exactly that kind of life. Listen, do our beliefs matter? Of course they do. I teach classes on Christian doctrine, and I could like build a small dwelling out of all the different Christian doctrine books I have. And if you've been around Bridgeway for more than five minutes, you know that we care a great deal about theological accuracy. But we've been studying the book of Acts all year, looking at the earliest years of the church. And I'll tell you this much, the church did not explode because a bunch of people had really accurate beliefs. 
The church exploded because in the face of a world-dominating empire and a religious system committed to preserving the status quo, the Holy Spirit was active in their midst and they lived lives of radical love for one another and for outsiders. And I'm going to show you a really cool example of that in just a minute. Now, some of you can see where I'm going with this. And I can hear the objections now. This is one of the, the joys of speaking in public for a living, is you just imagine every objection as you're talking, right? It does not in any way produce any sort of paranoia whatsoever. But I can imagine the objections now, like, oh, Pastor Brian, you think that the way for Christians to change culture is for us just to be radically loving. Like, oh, that's, that's so cute. Oh, that must be fun not living in reality. Maybe I'll join you sometime. See, back here in reality, Pastor Brian, we have to fight. Because see, the other side, whatever the heck that means, the other side is fighting, so we need to fight. I could fill a sermon, maybe two or three, on just how incandescently flawed that line of reasoning is. But for now, I'll just say this. You and I as individuals, us collectively as a church, us more collectively, the body of Christ in this region, in this country, we get to decide whose methods we're going to try to adopt if we're going to try to change culture. Do we want to adopt the methods of Jesus or do we want to adopt the methods of those that we are fighting against? I don't think that choice is that hard. And, and, And listen, I'm not the one telling you that radical love is how Christians change the world. I'm not the one telling you that radical love is how the world knows that we are Christians. I'm just delivering the mail. Jesus said that. But, 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 again, objections, but that just seems so weak and impractical, and it means I have to be nice on social media, which is way less fun. And if it seems weak and impractical, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but Remind me who the current emperor of Rome is. Like, who's, who is it? I remember the last one. I don't know who it is. There isn't one, right? See, violent and coercive empires, nations, and movements come and go. But the church of Jesus Christ, a movement built on sacrificial love, even to enemies, endures and expands to this day. So you tell me what works and what doesn't. I'm crazy enough to believe that the violent and coercive and divisive ways of the world don't work. And I feel a little bit less crazy when I remember that Jesus didn't think they worked either. Listen, you and I, we want to impact culture. We are not warriors. We are witnesses. We bear witness to a better way of life. And we do this not through mere belief, but through sacrificial actions that are inspired by our beliefs. Warriors are always looking for a fight. Witnesses point to a better way of life. Warriors seek to destroy. Witnesses seek to transform. Warriors are motivated by hate. Witnesses are motivated by love. Warriors can never admit they are wrong. Witnesses live with humility under the banner of God's grace. Numerous theologians and historians can attest 
to the truth that the early church grew because they demonstrated a degree of love and care and compassion that was unheard of in Greco-Roman culture. That was transformative then, and it could be transformative now. As a matter of fact, in the first century Greco-Roman world, the idea of extending kindness who could not, to somebody who could not reciprocate that kindness back to you, that was not a cultural value. That was considered something that only a weak person would do. And yet, Christians Christians, inspired by Jesus, considered this sort of kindness to be virtuous, and as outsiders saw this, they were intrigued. In a culture that discarded unwanted children and literally left them to die and had no problem with that, Christians would take those infants and raise them as their own. And this is a time where just feeding the mouths of everyone in your household was a challenge enough. So to take in another mouth was sacrifice bordering on danger, and they would do it because of love. In an endlessly violent culture, Christians lived by a nonviolent ethic. In a culture that devalued women and didn't so much as let them learn, the church we've been learning through the book of Acts was a place where women didn't just learn, they led. In a culture that was segregated by economic class, rich and poor, in the church, rich and the poor were in community together and they served one another. In a culture that was consumed by the fear of the gods, that the gods were angry, Christians spoke of the one true God of love. In fact, I told you I wanted to give you an example. Here's the example. I read about this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was just amazing. Now, I've been talking about the Roman Empire a lot this morning. Christian, Christianity, of course, grew in that context. And in, you may, might already know this, that in its earliest days, uh, Christ, in their earliest days, Christians were called atheists by the Romans because Christians did not worship the Roman gods. And because they didn't worship the Roman gods, oftentimes when things would go badly in society, Christians would be blamed for it. Because the idea was, well, Christians are not worshiping the gods, the gods are angry, therefore my crops won't grow and our army is losing. That was, that's obviously simplified, but that's the gist. So early in the second century, the emperor was a guy named Trajan, and things were not going well in the Roman Empire for a variety of different reasons. So Trajan concluded the most reasonable conclusion for him was that the gods are angry. The gods are angry. So he sent out a decree all throughout his empire that Christians needed to be arrested and incarcerated. And one of the places this decree went was to one of his governors named Pliny the Younger. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a governor of a province in what is now modern-day Turkey. And Pliny, like most other Roman governors, wanted to keep the boss happy. So he's like, okay, this is what I, we're going to do. I need, I need to do it. But he was confused. Because, see, the decree did not specify why are we arresting Christians. It was known to Trajan, but it was not communicated in the decree. Why are we arresting them? And then what am I supposed to do with them once they're arrested? So Pliny wrote his boss a letter. But before writing the letter, he did some investigating. He arrested some Christians, brought them in for questioning to see if he could figure out why the emperor considered them such a threat. This is what he discovered, and this is what he wrote to his boss. Quote, The sub and sum and substance of their fall or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a god. Quick side note, if you're wondering if I like read second century Roman correspondence for fun and then like find the nuggets to bring to you, I do not. I read a 21st century book a few weeks ago that highlighted this anecdote and I'm sharing it with you. 
But look at what he found. The problem with these people, your excellency or whatever governors called emperors back then, is that they get together before dawn on Sundays and they sing to Christ as though he were a god. Why so, why so early? Because there was no such thing as a weekend in the ancient Roman world. Sunday was a work day, so they had to get together before work. Imagine if we had worship services at 5 a.m. on Monday morning. That was basically what they did. And I think this is really beautiful. Why singing? Because they had virtually no access to written materials. And so the main way that faith was communicated, the main way that it was learned, the main way that it was remembered was through the singing of hymns that articulated Christian truth. But again, he finds they get together on Sundays and they sing. This is a problem. But wait, there's more. Plenty continues. He says they meet together and at their meetings they would sing and they would, quote, bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. My goodness, arrest these people. We cannot have people who are honest and won't commit fraud and won't steal things and are faithful to their marriages and trust one another running around society. Absolutely not. It'll be complete chaos. And if I had time, I'd show you more of Pliny's letter. It's pretty wild. And one last little anecdote I'll, I'll share is he didn't really buy that that's all that was going on. That, okay, they get together, they sing to their, this Christ as though he is some sort of God, and then they commit to being these exemplary citizens in the empire, which, like, as a governor, he's, like, he's down with that. He likes citizens who behave themselves. So he's like, there's got to be something else going on. So it says he took two women from the church, and he tortured them to try to get them to talk. But all that he found, and he wrote this to his boss, all that he found was, quote, depraved, excessive superstition. In other words, he found that these people really do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So he wrote to his boss and basically said, I've got nothing on these people. See, the earliest followers of Jesus took seriously Jesus' command to love others as he had loved them. They took seriously Paul's instructions, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, to live in a manner that wins the respect of outsiders. Because I'll tell you this right now. If you want to persuade others of your point, if you want to persuade others of your point of view, they must first respect you. So Paul says, live a life that gains the respect of outsiders. They had a reputation as exemplary citizens and exemplary members of society. And listen, early Christian history is complicated, and we obviously cannot paint a full picture in a 25-minute teaching. But the point I want to make today is that the early church was a body in motion. They knew they were saved by grace through faith, that it was not of their own doing, it was a gift from God. And they also knew that they were God's workmanship created to do good works. It's Ephesians chapter 2. And they lived this out. No rallying around political candidates, no take Rome back for God campaigns, just lives individually and as a community of extraordinary love and courage. Now Rome has fallen and the church of Jesus Christ endures. When you attend seminary, sorry, it's a bit of a hard left turn. When you attend seminary, you have to do a lot of reading, like a lot 
a lot of reading. And I actually generally enjoyed seminary, and, and I enjoyed the reading that I did, but I'm not at all embarrassed to tell you that a decent chunk of it I forgot not long after I read it. But there's one paragraph towards the end of one book I had to read, and this book just has a scintillating title. You ready for it? Models of the Church. I'll understand if you need to get your phone out to order it off Amazon right now. Models of the Church. And it was originally published in 1974. And there's this one paragraph that has stuck with me all these years since seminary. And in it, the author, who's a guy named Avery Dulles, wrote this. He wrote, quote, In the early centuries, the church expanded not so much through concerted missionary efforts as through its power of attraction as a contrast society. In other words, he's saying what really made the church grow is, yes, there were missions. Yes, people went out and shared the gospel. What really made the church grow is they were a contrast to the society around them. He continues, seeing the mutual love and support of Christians and the high moral standards they observed, the pagans, that's non-Christians, non-Jews, sought entrance into the church. And he goes on to say, if the same is not happening today, that is largely because the church no longer appears conspicuously as the community of the disciples transformed by its participation in the new creation. And that ends on kind of a stinging note. If what happened back then is not happening today, it's because we're not a contrast society. He wrote that in the 1970s. He could have written it last week. And on some level, it's true, and it does sting a little bit. But I don't know about you, I actually, that, I think part of the reason that has stuck with me is I actually get, get, I, I gain some hope from it. I gain some hope from it because I look and I go, listen, in the beginning, those outside the church looked at Christians and said, wow, they really love each other and they live their lives in an inspiring way. I want to know more about that. The earliest Christians in a world obsessed with power, Christians showed a better way. In a bite and devour each other Roman world, Christians showed the power of love one another living. It was the lives of believers that stirred up interest in Jesus and the gates of heaven hell couldn't stop it. So I'm hopeful as I read that paragraph for the 10,000th time. Because it happened then, it can happen again. So I want to ask you, can we be that contrast society again? Because I believe if we took Jesus' command to love others as Christ has loved us, I believe the world would take notice. And if we understood that loving others is work, it is difficult, it is costly, it requires sacrifice, it's wonderful to get up here and use all sorts of flowery language about love one another. It is an entirely different thing to do the work of staying with one another, of actually valuing community and relationship. But the early, early church did that. And I just think, man, the world rightly, rightly, rightly rolls its eyes at us and our desperate grasping for cultural power. When we play those games, we are no different than them. I'm not interested in power. I'm interested in us being a contrast society that so emulates the love of Jesus that we have incredible influence. Because no one is inspired by people who complain about the culture. But people are inspired by a life centered on radical, sacrificial love. Isn't that true? 
in a world where individualism has made us lonely and angry, we can be witnesses to a better way of life by living out Jesus' command to love one another and to extend that love out into the world. One of the greatest opportunities for witness we have, again, in a world where we're just so ravaged by the consequences of our individualism and the autonomy of the self is by demonstrating to the world what a loving community, what a welcoming community looks like. Jesus has commanded us to be what the world longs for, a loving community that welcomes others in, and lives in joyful service to God and one another and the world. And that is ultimately what this weekend is all about. This weekend is about renewing our commitment to be the body of Christ through how we love one another and how we love others. We've invited all of our mission partners here so you can see and just be inspired by different people who are living this out and organizations who are living this out in powerful ways. And and some of you, you might be here today going, okay, yeah, I want to put my faith into action. I want to be a part of showing God's love out into the world. Maybe it might be time for you to get involved in one of our partner ministries. Or, Or maybe you're sitting here and you're going, man, yeah, I feel like I am doing my best to to live into this. I'm I'm valuing community. I'm part of a community group and I'm I'm serving God in different ways and seeking to represent him. Maybe you're in a place where you're like, I feel like I'm doing that. I hope this is just wind in your sails and I still want to encourage you, go talk to all of our different tables and just leave encouraged. Man, I love talking to all of our different partners because I'm just encouraged by the good work that God is doing. Because listen, y'all, what happened in the earliest centuries of the church truly was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. And I believe it can happen again. Jesus has given us his example. He has given us his Holy Spirit that empowers us. And now we get to act. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that is true. That as we seek to be your people who demonstrate your love to one another and out into the world, that we can follow your example, that we can look to you, Jesus, who is the ultimate example of sacrificial love. And we thank you that it is true that we have your Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us. So God, I pray that we as a church, Bridgeway, and every other church that proclaims your name, that lifts you up, that worships you here in our region and all over the country, God, that we would be places of loving community, that we would be able to bear witness to a better way of life, to an angry and fearful world. And I pray, God, that as we are a contrast society of people who love one another and love even our enemies and refuse to get caught up in the angry power games of the world, I pray that a watching world would take notice. And I pray they would take notice, not so they can think we're something great, but so they can see the greatness of who, who you are. And God, I do pray that revival would come to America and it would not come through us trying to take, take a bunch of power or be in control, but it would just come from ordinary people like us living lives of joyful love and service, motivated by you, our great king and our great example. So we love you, Jesus. May these things be so. We pray these things in your awesome name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Go ahead.